0: Welcome back to the Room Madness podcast. Thanks everyone for being here. Um, This is the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology to connect, collaborate, compete, and learn together. Uh, We're thrilled to be joined by an amazing group tonight to talk about the teams in the people region of the bracket, um, which then means that our bracket is complete. So these are the last four teams in the bracket. If you've been listening along, you've gotten to experience the teams in the cells, animal house, and machines region. And now, of course, you can't have a planet of the rheumatologist without people. (laughs) And so um, uh, tonight we're going to talk about the teams that are in this people region. Um, Just a few quick reminders. um, um, Depending on when you are listening to this podcast, um, you may already be um, about to submit a bracket or we may have already um, opened bracket entries. That happens on March 14th and will continue for two weeks. Um, And if you want to make sure that you don't miss any opportunity to sign up to um, submit a bracket, you can subscribe to our Room Madness newsletter, um, which you'll find on our website, which is in the show notes. Um, So don't miss your chance to actually submit a bracket because um, this isn't just about listening to the podcast. It's about participating as a learning community. Um, And uh, just it's free to participate. Um, Tell your friends. It'll be great. All right. So I'm going to introduce, uh, or I'm going to have everyone that's here on this um, call introduce themselves. Um, we'll go yeah. around. Uh, Lauren, would you introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm Lauren He. I'm a third-year internal medicine resident at the University of Chicago, and I helped out with um, TNF uh, inhibitor during pregnancy, as well as the increasing prevalence in ANA articles.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And Cassie? Cassie?
2: Hi, I'm Cassie Sims. I am a second-year rheumatology fellow at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm here today to talk about the American College of Rheumatology Reproductive Guidelines.
0: Fantastic. And Stacy.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Stacey
3: Bagrava. I'm a first-year rheumatology fellow at the University of South Florida, here to discuss false
4: positive axial um, spinal arthritis MRI.
0: Great. And Kugi?
4: Sure, I'm Coogie Evans. I'm an adult and pediatric rheumatologist at the University of Chicago, and I have an interest in reproductive health and rheumatology, so I'm leading my uh, experts expertise to that today.
0: That's great. I love this group that's on this call, um, particularly because we have everyone from uh, you know Kugi, who's an attending, all the way down to a resident, um, and um, sometimes we even had uh, medical students on this podcast. Um, and so, I, I just want to remind everyone that Room Madness is for everyone, um, and that includes uh, attendings, fellows, residents, medical students, any other healthcare uh, professionals, trainees, advanced practice providers. Um, we've even had patients participate, and we love that. So, um, I just, I love, I love it when the podcast crew uh, reflects our target population, which is everybody. So, all right, um, the way this is gonna go, we're gonna go around and we're gonna briefly introduce the um, teams that are in this tournament. And then we're gonna talk about who we think uh, is gonna win. Um, So we're actually gonna start off with Cassie. Um, uh, The first team uh, in the bracket is um, the Reproductive Health Guidelines um, from the American College of Rheumatology. Um, So Cassie, would you give us a brief intro into this team?
2: Absolutely. So the ACI reproductive guidelines are a concerted effort by leaders in the field of reproductive rheumatology to address each phase of the reproductive cycle, including birth control, assisted reproductive technology, pregnancy, breastfeeding, uh, ovarian protection with teratogenic medications, and hormone replacement therapy for postmenopausal women. There is a demand for these guidelines as rheumatologic conditions more commonly impact women of reproductive age, and prior research shows only half of rheumatologists currently ask their patients about reproductive health, despite the majority of patients wanting their rheumatologist to take part in these conversations. To ease navigation, recommendations are stratified and tailored based on lupus activity level, presence of anti ro and La antibodies, and anti-phospholipid antibody status. The document displays well-organized tables to use as a quick reference for pregnancy and lactation compatible medications and strongly encourages collaboration with other specialists, including maternal <laughs> medicine, to ensure comprehensive medical care and improved pregnancy outcomes. We believe these guidelines can be used to initiate conversations with patients and facilitate optimal reproductive outcomes that validate patient priorities.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a it's a huge guideline. Um, and, uh, that means it's a, it's a huge team to get your head around, but, um, I thought uh, you all scouting report, um, which I did have a chance to work a little bit with, but you all did an amazing job, uh, um, with the the other Duke fellows to write this. I thought your scouting report did a great job of really helping people dive into this massive guideline and, um, know what they're going to get out of it. Um, so thank you. All right. Um, Lauren, would you tell us about the team that it is matched up against, which is a little different? It's not a guideline. um, And it's the um, article on TNF inhibitors in cord blood.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So our base article looks at biochemical evidence of TNF inhibitor concentrations in cord blood when taken during pregnancy. So we have guidelines which recommend the use of TNF inhibitors for certain amounts of time during pregnancy But even these guidelines can differ. So, for example, the European guidelines state that the first half of pregnancy is okay. ACR suggests discontinuing most during the third trimester. And actually, if you jump to the IBD literature, they recommend continuing throughout pregnancy without interruption and then adjusting the final dose prior to delivery. So we have all these guidelines, but knowing the actual amount of drug transferred is really key to understanding their safety profile. So our article studies mothers on TNF inhibitors, which were stopped per guidelines, typically between 20 and 37 weeks gestation, and quantified the amount of drug found in cord blood after delivery. Um, There were some surprising results, particularly with Etanercept, that may help boost support for existing guidelines and even help improve them. Uh, So we think we'll go pretty far in the tournament given the study affects both adults and infants, and one major takeaway of this study is having specific data for each TNF inhibitor, which allows us to give more specific patient-centered recommendations, and it serves as a guide to studying safety profiles in pregnant women and infants in a safe and ethical way. So we feel that the TNF, the TNF inhibitor and cord blood article takes reproductive guidelines one step further by looking at the science behind it and even rocks the boat on some current recommendations. So we think it'll go pretty far.
0: That's great. Thanks, Lauren. I love it. You're getting a few shots in already at the reproductive health guidelines. It's, <laughs> it's true gamesmanship. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it is, there were some surprising results and I love the way that you pointed out how it's not just this, this team really isn't just about what the article showed, but um, as a example for how this kind of thing can be studied and a few other things. So I I, I think that's a nice way to think about all of these concepts in the tournament is, um, there's what's in the, in, in the concept itself, but you can also wrap up into those concepts. Well, what's the broader implication? What does this mean? Um, Kugi, anything you want to, um, add, um, just a 10,000th of you, you're an expert in this area. We're really thrilled, um, for your help on this scouting report. Um, uh, what do you think about the importance of this, uh, um, uh, article on TNF inhibitors in cord blood?
4: Yeah. So, you know, I think the uh, you know, I love the reproductive health guidelines, but I feel like sometimes the uh, guidelines of stopping uh, medications in the third trimester falls a little bit flat. Uh, and so I think our article about TNF inhibitors and core blood really um, gives credence uh, to the thought that we can actually continue these medications very safely throughout a woman's entire pregnancy without any major repercussions to herself or her child.
0: Yeah, it's great. The more, yeah, I agree. The more safety data we have to reassure patients, to reassure ourselves, the better. Um, I love it. Um, and um, I know that you and many others um, are passionate about um, improving um, our management of uh, uh, rheumatic conditions during pregnancy. So this is, this is great. Um, okay. Uh, well, um, that is the top half of the bracket. The bottom half of the bracket um, talks a little bit about um, positive tests in people and makes us wonder um, about the meaning of those positive tests. Um, so Stacy, I'm going to throw it over to you to talk about um, false positive MRIs um, for axial spondyloarthropathy. Tell us a little bit about this article.
3: Yeah. So we all know that rheumatologic diagnoses are really hard, especially the ones that do not have a clear serologic markers like spondyloarthritis. And of course, we all wish for some sort of fancy study like an MRI to validate our suspicions. However, uh, this becomes a problem when we get a read from a radiologist that says, "Ah, maybe mild sacroiliitis is there, clinical correlation required. (laughs) Very useful. So I'm sure expired by an event like that, the authors of our base article analyzed um, the scans from 800 supposedly healthy German volunteers and they found an astounding amount of bone marrow edema in 12% of participants in the SI joints, in 17% of participants in their vertebral column, and fatty lesions in 80% of participants in the vertebral column. Of course, if the prevalence of spinal arthritis in Germany was greater than prevalence of COVID, that would be great. But I don't think that's what it means. Uh, it probably means that our definition of what a positive MRI for sacroiliitis is, is not very specific, or not very helpful. And there is more research ongoing into how we can define the positive MRI better. But in the meantime, we are left with what rheumatologists do best, taking excellent history, doing a detailed physical exam with every visit with our patients, and figuring out how we can help them best. Um, this may be a bit discouraging, but I think this, our article, really captures the essence of what rheumatology is, right? We are really good at figuring out these details of histories and details um, of physical exams, uh, And that's why uh, some claim that we're the smartest specialists in internal medicine. I mean, I have no opinion on that, but I've heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) And looking at the bright side, you know, diagnosing spondyloarthritis in humans may be hard, but it's much easier than that, than diagnosing that in dinosaurs, mostly because dinosaurs are extinct, but also because a T-Rex would probably not enjoy you trying to do a modified chobar on them.
0: (laughs) That is very true. And well... Well said. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, since, you know, since we've put out the dinosaur scouting report, you know, there have been some questions about, you know, did the dinosaurs actually have spondylarthropathy or was it DISH? Apparently, there are some studies of some mummies, actually, that um, had, for a while, people thought they had spondylarthritis and then it turns out they had dish. Now that that those mistakes are made out of uh, X rays and the dinosaurs were actually like analyses of erosions in the bones themselves by archaeologists. But you're all of that is to say you're right. It is easier to make a diagnosis in a human than a dinosaur. Um, but it's a great report and a great review. Yeah, y'all's report was fantastic. I love the way that you highlighted um, more than just the art, the base article that your team was um, was. Um, based on, but just kind of the broader view of axial spondyloarthritis. Um, I think at the end, you highlighted um, that there's actually some ongoing work by some others um, looking at um, what, how, is there a way we should redefine the definition of um, image of um, MRI changes that would suggest spondyloarthritis, um, which, you know, yeah, go ahead. I mentioned
3: that that briefly, because it is um, exciting. The Spartan group, which I did not know about before researching this, I'll be honest, Uh, but they're doing sort of this long-term study that is going to run until 2024. And I'm sure we'll discuss it in Grim Madness uh, shortly after. But um, they're looking at more stringent definition of MRIs and they're going to follow patients for five years and see kind of what their outcomes are um, and see how the MRI correlates with their symptoms. So that hopefully will be more helpful than what we have now. That's great. But again, nothing replaces um, people and our, uh, people
0: skills. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And, um, you know, you said some of my favorite words, um, that we come across in room madness, which is, I did not know about this before, um, we did this. This is some of my favorite words. Um, I love that. Um, hopefully, that, yeah, well, I say it a lot as well. Um, but you know, that's what this tournament's all about is hopefully getting people a little bit out of, um, what they're used to and reading some different, um, areas of evidence that, Maybe they wouldn't have found before. So great work! Um, all right, um, Lauren, I'm throwing it back to you um, from the U Chicago group. I'm um, looking at uh, positive MRIs in um, uh, or the increasing prevalence of positive. Um, Sorry, did I say MRIs? The increasing present prevalence of ANAs.
1: Awesome. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of essentials of rheumatology, that really brings us home with this one with increasing prevalence of, of positive ANA. So our base article used a database of 14,000 participants to determine the prevalence of ANA positivity among three major time periods. So they looked at the early 90s, early 2000s, and the early 2010s. Um, and the results did show an increase in ANA in specific specific age groups, but I'll direct you to the scattering report and base article to discover which ages this trend was most prevalent in, because it is pretty interesting. Um, and I'll say right off the bat that all samples in the study were were run using IFA on HEP2 cells. So differences in testing assays throughout the years could not really account for, for this trend. Uh so we know there's an increasing prevalence, but the real question is, does this matter? The old line of thinking was antibodies are all inappropriately produced and more equals worse. But there is now increasing evidence that autoantibodies are a natural part of physiologic immunity and some may play more of a regulatory role. So this has prompted the catchphrase, autoimmunity is not autoimmune disease, which brings us to the big question our team addresses, which is, is this increase in prevalence of ANA reflective of an increase in autoimmune disease? And while our answer to that question may not be super surprising, this discussion prompted the next question, which is, does positive ANA predict a susceptibility to developing future autoimmune disease? And the jury still seems to be out on that one. Um, so we think this article will go far in the tournament because it brings us back to the basics it sheds light on interesting trends that will certainly keep the referrals coming in the future um, and this topic is not just important to the rheumatologist but to primary care docs trainees at all levels uh, so this really makes our article applicable to everyone listening
0: that's great yeah thank you and yeah this article blew my mind and um it, you know if you're looking for Concrete answers out of an article. You will not uh, get it out of this team, but there are a lot of questions. And I, you know, I just said, I love it when people say I wasn't aware of this until now. I, I'll say it right now. I, your scouting report, um, really, I had not really died. Um, I really wasn't a, aware of this growing conversation about um, how autoantibodies may be a part of um, uh, regular human physiology and what that means. And so I, I was really fascinated by that. And it really got me thinking. So thank you. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a question. Um, you know, we see a lot of positive ANA consults, um, and you know, this, this is basically a positive ANA consult on the entire U S population. So if anybody can figure that one out, um, that would be great. Um, all right, well, so four amazing teams, um, All of the scouting reports in this uh, region, everyone um, on this call, everyone that worked on these, um, they're amazing and um, they're amazing resource uh, learning resources. And I'm really thankful that we have them as part of the tournament this year. Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit about who we think is going to win this region. And I'll just remind our listeners of two things. Number one, uh, we're not debating the quality of the scouting reports because they're all top-notch and fantastic. We're just debating um, whether or not we think the teams will win. Um, and when we say when, we mean um, what the Blue Ribbon Panel is going to decide in terms of um, which teams they think are the most important to patients, providers, and researchers, both now and in the future. Um, and the second thing I'll remind everyone on is we have absolutely no influence over the Blue Ribbon Panel. They will make their decisions probably without listening to this podcast at all. So um, this is just uh, this is these are just our thoughts. But Kugi, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it to you first. I. Just you know, as an expert in um, uh, um, the field of reproductive health as it relates to rheumatology, um even as an adult and pediatric rheumatologist in particular, you know where a lot of the teams in the tournament we really actually tried to build so they'd have applicability to both adult and pediatric rheumatologists. I'm just really curious on your thoughts on this matchup that we have between the reproductive health guidelines and this um, article on TNF inhibitor levels in cord blood. Um, what do you think, um, who, do, who do you think is going to win this matchup? Um, and do you think the winner is going to take the whole region?
4: So, you know, the three productive guidelines are near and dear to my heart. But, you know, the issue with guidelines is that by the time they're published, they're almost a little bit out date. Um, and unfortunately, I think that uh, will kind of put the reproductive guidelines back on the bench um, with the TNF cord uh, blood article kind of uh, going ahead and uh, proceeding through with this bracket um, uh, in terms of being, I hope, the winner. Um, you know, I think it gives us a lot more concrete information than the guidelines now give us and really kind of uh, is really additional to what um, exists already. Um, and again, kind of confirms to me like, uh, clinically what most people are actually doing. Um, you know, the guidelines are um, such an amazing creation of information, um, so broad, covered so many different topics. Um, and so they are really important um, to patients. But I do think that the, the fact that to me, they're already a little bit outdated and this other article kind of highlights that um, to me kind of puts them at the bottom of the bracket for me.
0: Wow. All right. Making the call. I love it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it really depends on how the blue ribbon panel looks at it because, you know, the blue ribbon panel may look at it that way. They may look at the guidelines and say, all right, you know, this is a call to research. This is a call to, you know, these are future areas that we need. Um, and whether or not they look at that as a strength or a, or a flaw, I guess, is in the eyes of the panel. Um, but your points are, are very well taken. And, um, yeah, I, I I think this this TNF inhibitor in cord blood. It seems like a small study, but I think the more you squint at this study, the more um, the implications start to really um, grow. Um, I think know- also
4: the core blood to be able to to show that to a patient to really show that there's concrete evidence that these medications don't cross the placenta um or uh measurable or quantifiable amounts that we think have any real effect i I think is big um guidelines are one thing but i think really having the the meat and the data for a patient to discuss with them the risks is really important
0: yeah that's true um Stacey, you did not write a scouting report on either one of these topics. (laughs) So I'm curious, uh, you know, first of all, had you reviewed um, before, you know, uh, being a part of this region, um, any of these um, topics and um, uh, now that you are aware of them, what do you think about the matchup? Who do you think is going to win this?
3: Yeah. So I've actually have reviewed the reproductive guidelines and I was very excited about them. Um, Obviously, as rheumatologists, we take care of a lot of women, as we just pointed out in the scouting report. Um, A lot of women of reproductive age. And I really love how the guidelines are organized. They're beautiful tables that have colors in them that are really easy to read. I've actually, this week, twice, I've printed the guidelines and gave it to patients. So I have found them very useful in just my day-to-day clinical practice. And I did it Conference talk on reproductive health and hepatic disease, and the guys were very helpful um, in that too. So, personally, I think that the TNF, um inhibitors and in cord blood research is very interesting. And I think I will also probably use it to tell my patients about the medications that they're on and that they're safe. But uh, for me, the reproductive guidelines definitely take the crown because it's just so useful. So you don't really need to read the whole thing. You can just go to the tables or the diagrams which you have done. And I think I really love that it addresses um, reproductive technologies and men, which is very important. <laughs> They're also a part of, of um, reproductive health. So I, I think the guidelines are excellent. And I commend everyone who worked on them. It's been really useful in clinical practice.
0: It's great. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be an interesting matchup. You know, are you a guideline person? Are you a data person? Um, You know, you got to squint, you got to look at the panel and see, you know, who do you think um, the panel members are and what, what, uh, what, um, you know, what perspective do they have. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I think both of you have highlighted um, the extreme importance of translating this um, concept into both of these concepts into into clinical practice and into, you know, getting it into patients' hands, getting it into providers' hands, especially providers' hands that aren't rheumatologists. Um, And, you know, I know that there's a lot of work ongoing right now. You know, I'm blown away by the work that um, Dr. Close does at our institution. She's created this resource called lupuspregnancy.org, or the Hopstep program, um, where it's kind of like that. It's like a little handout that uh, made for patients and providers. I printed that out and gave it to a patient today. We kind of walked through it. Um, But yeah, I mean, the guidelines themselves um, are a great way to hand that out. And yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it. But yeah, I mean, a patient on eTanercept who may be uh, hesitant to take it during pregnancy, if you can show them this data saying, look, you know, um, they follow at least the ULAR points to consider, you know, and stop it at 30 weeks, there's zero in the blood. Um, And it was fascinating. Um, Lauren, I I don't know, Lauren or Kugi chime in on this. It was fascinating you know, we typically think of uh, Cirtalizumab as the one that um, is not detectable, but there was a little bit um, and none for Etanercept, which is interesting. I don't know if y'all have any thoughts on why they saw that.
1: It is interesting. I think when you dig into the article, they actually stopped Etanercept a bit earlier than even ULAR recommendations recommended. It was prior to 30 weeks for almost everyone. So I do wonder if that had a, a bit of an effect on the on the results, but I agree that was certainly like a something that I wasn't expecting to see. Yeah,
4: I still think we have some, you know, there's reasons why a tannercept doesn't treat things like uveitis and IBD, um, which I still think we don't quite understand, and why the other TNF biologics do. Um, and so I think that may also play into why a tannercept may not actually have uh, placental transference um, compared to the other monoclonal antibodies.
0: Yeah. There's something different about it. It's interesting. All right. Well, um, this is a great, great conversation. I don't know. At the end, I'm going to ask everybody to put their final money down on the whole uh, region, but all right, Cassie. um, So you did not write a scouting report on the increasing prevalence of ANA and the false positive MRIs. I am curious who you think is going to win out of that part of the region.
2: So I love the positive ANA paper because I wish we could just disseminate it to every primary care doctor um, in the country, because how often do we get a referral for a positive ANA um, without a titer and the patient has you know, migrating polyarthralgias. I feel like it's a very, very common referral that we get. And it's part of our job to evaluate if we think there is an underlying autoimmune disease, but oftentimes that positive ANA, how many times we tell women 10 to 20% of the general population has a positive ANA without any type of rheumatic underlying rheumatic disease. And so I think this paper sheds a lot of light on that topic that, like you're saying, auto, people having autoantibodies does not equal autoimmunity. So having a positive ANA does not equal having lupus. And I think that concept is very well known to the rheumatologic world, but not outside of that. So that paper, the positive ANA paper can be applicable to our world, but also other providers, whereas the positive MRI we're typically dealing with more often just in rheumatology along with our radiologist and trying to decide if, you know, did they run a marathon or did they just give birth? And so they have this false positive MRI. Um, I feel like the ANA paper is a little bit more broadly applicable. And so that's why I, I choose that one in that matchup.
0: It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, They both have broad implications, but you're right. The the ANA, I mean, yep, most common consult, we see it a lot. And um, trying to figure out what an ANA means is um, uh, um, often what we do. Um, Did it today several times. Um, uh, And, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it always makes you sad when You know, it's always fine to see the patient and and reassure them if they, if they don't have a rheumatic disease, but it's always really frustrating when, if the patient has had to wait for a while and is, you know, really distraught, or, you know, there's some um, anxiety that there's a lot of anxiety that can come with being concerned. You have an autoimmune disease, depending on what you've been told. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's definitely an interesting concept. Uh, You know, flip side, this, these positive MRIs in um, uh, axial spondyloarthritis, it is tough. Uh, you know, I mean, we talk to our radiologists and they, you know, um, you know, Cassie knows we we meet with, you know, our radiologists and they're like, I'm, you know, that, you know, what we said was, you know, spinal arthritis today changes tomorrow. And, you know, it's um, I definitely think we need more specificity when it comes to this test, because often it's the only thing we have. And and I think this is also really important. I don't know, um, you know, Lauren or Stacy or could you chime in on this? Um, but for me, you know, the MRI is crucial to reducing um, some disparities in, in the care of spinal arthritis because so often we're underdiagnosing women with this disease, um, people with negative um, inflammatory markers or populations where we don't have a high prevalence of B27, we're relying on the MRIs. Um, and so it's such a crucial test, but the flip side is, if it's not as helpful as it sh- as it should be, how can we actually make that test more more helpful? So I don't know. I I I think it, I, I'm 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 I maybe tipping my hat to which team I think is going to win, but um, it's an interesting team.
3: I think that the, just doing research for this um, report, I think the comforting data that I found is that when they looked at um, radiographic progression of um, sacroiliitis, just on x-rays, they found that actually there was a percentage of patients that were read as positive, meeting New York, modifying York criteria, which then uh, several years later were negative. So there were probably some changes uh, that were seen on their x-rays. And the progression of disease is um, slow for patients who have uh, negative findings on in, in their initial visits. So I think the the comforting thought here, even if the MRI is inclusive, we can trust completely as long as we and do our job and follow our patients, then they are not gonna, you know, progress to bamboo spine within a year um, if we don't give them TNF inhibitors. And there's actually research that shows that TNF inhibitors do not improve outcomes at six months in patients who do not have clear radiographic evidence or elevated inflammatory markers. So I think there is there's not a good exact answer, which we don't get a lot in rheumatology anyway. But there is. A lot to say about you know patient-doctor relationship and and how important that is and how important our expertise is and clinical manifestations of these diseases
0: yeah it's true all right well all right we're gonna have to go around and um uh we're gonna all have to make a call this is very official and um <laughs> so all right lauren who do you think is going to win this region
1: So I, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say increasing prevalence of ANA, mostly because I don't think many other people will, you know, boost this report up. But I think it's got a lot of potential. The importance of the topic is huge. It's relevant to anyone who's gone to medical school. Patients come into us with this question all the time. So I think ANA is here to stay. And I think if Dr. Co, in the true Chicago style has a little sister gene in him, I think this is going to be a huge upset and I think it's going to win the region.
0: Wow. All right. It is here to stay. We're already coming up with cheers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Cassie, what do you think?
2: So um, I think it would be a missed opportunity not to promote the paper that I am here to defend. So I am <laughs> going to say the ACR Reproductive Guidelines. It is a wonderful document that covers so much, and it's an important topic that a lot of rheumatologists are not comfortable talking about. And as the data shows, you know, we're not engaging constantly in these conversations. You know, Stacey, you are a rare breed. Thank you for printing these out and giving it to patients. I mean, that is not a common practice. So we want these guidelines to make physicians comfortable to have these conversations and make patients feel empowered that they are involved in their reproductive health. So this document can be used clinically with patients making very critical decisions to minimize pretty terrible outcomes that can occur if we don't do our job in reproductive health.
0: That's great. All right. So far, I don't know. We're two for two, people picking their team. So uh, um, Stacy, what do you think? Who's going to win?
3: I uh, do not want to vote for myself. <laughs> you.
0: But you're going to?
3: <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I, I think I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing our an article and it come up, it came up clinically. It comes up almost every single day. Um, we think about this a lot, especially of the VA. Um, so even if it doesn't go far, but it should, I feel like it was very useful for me and my colleagues, but I will work for um, reproductive uh, guidelines.
0: All right, Kugi, uh, you get the last word on uh, who's gonna win.
4: All right. I'm going to go for my TNF and core blood. I, uh, you know, I really think that this article just adds so much more to our knowledge, um, especially with rheumatoid arthritis um, being one of the most common uh, diseases that we actually treat as well as our um, spondyloarthropathies and psoriatic arthritis is I really think this has a big potential to impact a lot of women in their pregnancy planning.
0: Well, that's great. And I'm just thankful to all of you for, um, enjo- you know, um, Tossing these teams around a little bit with us uh, this evening and, um, you know, we'll have to see what happens in the tournament. Um, All right. We're going to transition to our last segment of uh, tonight's podcast. And that, you know, as everyone knows, um, if you've been listening along, um, if you haven't, this is what we're doing. Um, We have also been highlighting um, issues as they relate to uh, disparities in care, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, for each of the uh, major concepts in the tournament. Um, obviously there's only so much that we can say out of a huge topic, uh, but we want to incorporate these conversations so that we highlight not just the learning, but the disparities and the needs. And, um, uh, obviously there's huge needs in axial spondyloarthritis, um, arthritis as well as lupus. And some of those things were, th- uh, touched on, um, but, um, not that we don't think those are important, uh, but what we really wanted to focus on, uh, for this episode is, Uh, Disparities as they relate to reproductive health care for patients with rheumatic diseases. So um, Cassie is going to lead us through just a a few quick points on that. Um, Cassie, would you uh, mind telling us what you wanted to uh, present? Yeah,
2: so um, I'm just going to frame this discussion with a quick overview of of two important papers that show the importance of discussing disparities in women uh, with lupus. So the first is a paper published by Dr. Megan Close back in 2016 that utilized the nationwide inpatient sample that collected information on about 13,500 pregnancies in women with lupus. And they found that preeclampsia and gestational hypertension occurred in 20% of Black and Hispanic pregnancies, which is a much higher rate in comparison to white women. Black and Hispanic women still had higher rates of preeclampsia, preterm labor, fetal growth restriction, even after adjusting. for medical and obstetric predictors of pregnancy outcomes. And lastly, they actually found that Black and Hispanic women paid more for their hospitalizations in comparison to white women. The next study is the PROMISE study, which ran from 2003 to 2014. There was a 2018 study that looked at 400 pregnancies of women with lupus, and some had antiphospholipid antibodies as well. White women lived in areas with the highest college degrees, and Black and Hispanic women lived in areas with the, that had the lowest socioeconomic status. And what they found is Black women had significantly higher odds of adverse pregnancy outcomes compared to white women, even with adjustment for age and clinical variables. They also adjusted for socioeconomic status. And when they did that, these adverse pregnancy outcomes were no longer statistically significant. Um, black and Hispanic women with antiphospholipid syndrome were 10 times more likely than white women with APS to have adverse pregnancy outcomes. And these findings were surprising because the women in the promised trial had monthly visits with rheumatologists and labs performed at least once a trimester. So even with optimal care, black and Hispanic women still had worse pregnancy outcomes compared to white women with lupus. So these studies display the disparities that these women are experiencing. And I think we probably witness this on a regular basis in our clinical practice. Um, But the fact that there is data supporting these observations is is honestly very disturbing. And the fact that we are talking about reproductive health is a first step, but we have to recognize that there is um, systemic racism within healthcare and black women have worse maternal and fetal outcomes because of that, because of biases and racism that does exist in the United States and having a conversation about it and highlighting it is the first step to identifying it and trying to find solutions. Um, so I'm curious, we have a great panel here today, if, if people have had experience with um, witnessing disparities in practice, or if, if you've struggled with, uh, with these issues at, at your institutions.
0: Thanks, Cassie. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a hugely important uh, topic and thank you for reviewing those papers and, uh, you know, um, you're right. It's important for us to talk about it, which is why we're doing this here. And, you know, as we, as we, you know, go through um, making our picks in the tournament, all of that, um, we we just want to make sure that um, we highlight these areas so that as we learn about the topics, um, we also have the awareness of these disparities um, so that, you know, ultimately the goal is for us to not just learn about these concepts, but to apply them in our practices and Um, we definitely need to take an awareness of disparities as we apply these um, in our practices. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I I definitely want to open it up to others, but I mean, I I think you're right. I mean, I think this is something that we see and um, I think, you know, the paper that you, you illustrated on um, how some of the, um, some of the adverse pregnancy outcomes seem to go away after you adjusted for socioeconomic status really highlight the importance of structural changes um, you know, obviously we need um, to end racism and we need to, um, you know, f- uh, um, examine ourselves and our institutions in terms of unconscious and conscious bias. Um, but there's so many structural um, uh, um, factors that contribute to some of these disparities that also have to be addressed. Um, and so partnering with communities, uh, making sure that, you know, we we previously talked about um, Increasing or um, the role of racism in contributing to disparities in clinical trial enrollment for women with lupus or for patients with lupus, um, and I, some of the some of the themes that came out of that qualitative analysis was that um, providers needed to be trustworthy and they needed to work for institutions that were seen as trustworthy as well. That um, institutions were not just out there for research, but they were there to actually partner with communities. And I think the same thing is true. Um, when it comes to reproductive health care, um, and uh, I think that's I think that's huge.
4: You know my mantra is always, you know women's health is health care. Um, and I think although uh, these articles really highlighted the disparities in rheumatology practice in our patients, it really spreads beyond that. We know that um, you know there's a lot of socioeconomic disadvantages um, in in uh, terms of, pregnancy outcomes, maternal death, specifically um, across races. Um, and I, I think that really you know, is, again, highlighted in our, in our specialty by these articles um, where we can, again, play a role. And I think that, again, highlights uh, two of the articles that we talked about today about reproductive health and, again, how important it is in our rheumatology patients for uh, uh, us as clinicians to actually have a role and, and get those conversations um, started as well in our clinical practice. This okay. also goes back to
3: another discussion that we've had, you guys have had, about increasing the diversity in healthcare and having patients have providers that look like them, that they can trust, that speak the same language. And I don't, um, White and I speak Ukrainian and Russian, and I've had patients who don't speak English really well, and they've definitely made breakthroughs in their care when they were able to speak the same language. And I certainly see that with my colleagues who are able to speak Spanish to Patients. Um, and I think there's definitely something that gets lost in translation. I struggle with this every day. Um, and I don't want to learn Spanish too, for that reason. Um, but I think, yeah, increasing the diversity in healthcare as well um, to provide better care for our patients is very important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the more we can diversify our workforce, um, the more we can diversify our um, research force, the more we can have um, diversity, um, you know. Uh, actually, you know, contributing to putting together guidelines and creating, you know, research agendas and being a part of, being a part of, um, you know, study sections and and um, areas that you know review grants. I mean, that the more that um, we're able to diversify uh, or increase diversity, um, just the benefits are um, are huge. And so, yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, getting back to one of that that first discussion about making sure we don't squeeze that pipeline at the top and uh, making sure that we have an equitable approach to recruitment um, to engaging trainees at all levels um, and helping everyone see what an amazing career rheumatology is and that um, anyone can be a rheumatologist um, and uh, and giving everyone um, uh, the right opportunities to do that is huge Um, so uh, thank you for highlighting that. And Cassie, thank you for highlighting this, this topic. This is, um, this is really important. And I'm really thankful that we had the chance to have conversations like this throughout um, this podcast series. So I think with that, we are about to wrap up. Um, this ends our review of the teams um, for Room Madness 2022. Um, and we are so excited uh, that the tournament is about to begin. Um, I am so thankful to the group that came here this evening to talk to, about these teams. Thank you to you all and to all of your um, uh, friends and colleagues who helped you write these reports. Um, I learned so much from them. I learned so much from you all. Um, I am so delighted that the rheumatology community gets to learn from uh, the learners, from fellows and residents. Um, I truly believe that you all are some of the best teachers that we could have. Um, and so uh, it's, it's just wonderful that we could, we could do this. Um, So thank you all for joining us.
4: Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: All right. That is it. We did it.